There are many titles for Jesus found throughout the pages of Scripture. And some of those titles may really resonate with you, your life. What are some of your favorite titles for Jesus? I think of titles like King of Kings. Aren't you glad that Jesus is the King of Kings? I love when the Bible calls Jesus the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I love the title for Jesus when Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I like that. But as we think about the different titles for Jesus in God's Word, perhaps no two titles summarize His person His work better than the two titles for Jesus Christ that are highlighted in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Peter points us to Jesus as Lord and Christ. And I want to think about the import of those two titles, what they communicate about the person, the work of Jesus Christ. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, as we continue our study, line by line, verse by verse, this wonderful New Testament book. Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 22. Now I want to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. God's Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Inspired, breathed out by God, inerrant, infallible, truth with no mixture of error. I'm grateful for my Bible. How about you? Acts chapter 2, verse 22. The Bible says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up, According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I love verse 24. God raised him up. We just celebrated that in song. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Look in verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And in verse 36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we come to you, Lord, to express our dependence upon you, Lord, we believe that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So would you, Lord, by your Spirit, take your word and apply it to our lives, that we might be changed, 
that we might be transformed, that we might leave this room differently than we walked in. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts. Help us to see and grasp these these timeless, timeless truths. And we'll thank you for that grace. Lord, have your way in our midst. And we ask and pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We saw at the beginning of our study in Acts that Jesus, after his death of the cross, after his resurrection, spent about 40 days on the earth with his followers. And before he ascended back to heaven, before he went to the right hand of the Father, Jesus gave his followers some some marching orders. He told them, commanded them to make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He commanded them to be His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. But right before He ascended back to heaven, He gave them another command that preceded the command to make disciples. He said in Acts 1, Go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait, He said, for the promise of the Father, which which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He wanted his disciples to know that they could never fulfill his commandments without the power of the Spirit. So the disciples go back to Jerusalem. They're in an upper room praying together for about 10 days. And on the day of Pentecost, that great Jewish feast, the Lord begins to pour out his Spirit upon his followers. And the pouring out of the Spirit on his followers is accompanied by signs and wonders. They hear a... Mighty rushing wind. They see tongues of fire over each person's head. And they begin to speak of the mighty works of God. But here's what's interesting about that. There are people gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost from many different nations. Jews that had been scattered throughout the known world. And as these Galilean disciples began to speak of the mighty works of God, these people who spoke different languages understood it. God miraculously gave the disciples the ability to, to speak in a, in, a, in a foreign language that they did not know, but that others could understand. And so people began to gather. What's going on here? There's mighty rushing wind, and there's tongues of fire, and they're preaching in different tongues. What's happening here? Well, Peter stands up to explain what's happening. That's what this sermon in Acts 2 is all about. And we looked at the introduction last week and saw that Peter reminds them of a prophecy in the book of Joel. And he's saying this day was prophesied by Joel, a day when God would pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. You are seeing that come to fulfillment. You're seeing the beginning of the church age that begins on this day and will end when Jesus Christ returns, characterized by God's Spirit being poured out upon His followers so they can be His witnesses and proclaim the gospel. So he explains what's happening on that day of Pentecost. He explains the supernatural signs and wonders. But then he keeps on preaching. And he preaches this wonderful gospel message that is centered upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So last week we studied the introduction. This week we're going to study the body of the sermon. The the main point of what Peter wants to say. And then next week we're going to to discuss the, the conclusion how Peter calls the people to decision. But here in the middle of this wonderful message, Peter highlights the work of Jesus Christ. I want you to see four aspects of the work of Christ as we work our way through this passage. You can follow along with me there in your notes. First of all, 
we see the life of Jesus. As we think about the work of Jesus Christ, we see here the life of Jesus. Look what Peter says in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Peter causes the people in Jerusalem to think about the life of Jesus Christ. And he reminds us there that the life of Jesus was marked by power. Did you see the three terms he used? Mighty works, wonders, signs. The, the, the term translated mighty works speaks of his, 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 his power being manifest through his life. It speaks of miracles where the laws of nature were suspended so God could do what he wanted to do through his son, Jesus Christ. Mighty works, miracles. The, the, the word wonder speaks of awe-inspiring acts, acts that caught people's attention and caused them to stand in awe and wonder at what Jesus Christ performed in their midst. Then he uses the word signs. These speak of signs of the kingdom. This is God's way of saying, the kingdom is coming near to you through my son. And these signs accompanied the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So the life of Jesus Christ was marked by power. And undoubtedly, in that audience, hearing Peter preach, there were people that, that had an, uh, a front row seat to see the power of God displayed through Jesus Christ. Perhaps in Jerusalem on that day, the crowded feast day, perhaps there was someone there that had eaten bread. That Jesus had miraculously provided to over 5,000 people when he only had five loaves of bread and two fish given to him by a young boy. Perhaps someone could say, yeah, I've experienced that power. I ate the bread on that day. I was there. Yes, I know what you're speaking of, Peter. And perhaps someone else could say, I was at Cana in Galilee when Jesus showed up and turned water into wine. I have personally experienced his power. I know what you're speaking of. And Peter here reminds us of the life of Jesus. His life was marked by immeasurable power. But also, not only was his life marked by power, his life was marked by compassion. Think of it like this. The signs and wonders that Jesus uh, performed brought great blessing to others. In other words, God brought his power, his signs, his wonders, his miracles to bear on hurting people's lives. Everywhere Jesus went, he did good. He helped people. He healed people. He even raised people from the dead. He brought his, his power to bear on others' lives. And so people that saw the life of Jesus saw his power, but they also saw his compassion. And I also want you to notice that his life was marked by complete availability to the Father. Look what it says there in verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, through him in your midst. These signs and wonders were done through Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ lived in perfect obedience and availability to the Father. And because of his full surrender, God worked through him to perform his purposes. And so the life of Jesus is is awesome for us to step back and look at, but it's also a pattern for us to emulate. We can, 
follow the example of Jesus by being available to what God wants to do through our lives. Because Jesus lived that out. God did these through his life. And so Peter here highlights the life of Jesus. He wants people to understand the magnificent, marvelous, astounding, majestic life of Jesus Christ. Now, when you go to a funeral, there's often a portion of the service called the eulogy. The word eulogy literally means to bless. And that portion of the service is meant to recount a person's life, precious memories, funny stories, meaningful moments. Now, it's interesting to note that Jesus didn't have a funeral. You know why? Because he walked out of his own tomb, right? That messed up the whole funeral thing. He didn't have a funeral. But can you imagine if there had been a memorial service for Jesus? Can you imagine person after person after person after person bearing witness to the power and the compassion of Jesus Christ as he lived on this earth? Peter highlights the the life of Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. Peter also highlights the death of Jesus. Look what he says in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here Peter speaks of the cross. And there are three important things that Peter says about the cross in this verse. First of all, we see the destiny of the cross. In verse 23, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, some people might examine the life of Jesus from a distance and say, you know, he was just a a religious teacher, a good moral man. And in the first century, this religious teacher got caught up in circumstances beyond his control. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time, and the Romans crucified him. They were worried about his influence, as were the other religious leaders. And this good man, this religious man, just got caught up in circumstances that were really beyond his control. He was just, he was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Is that how you explain the cross? The answer is no. Peter says that the cross was planned according to the the predetermination, the foreknowledge of God. In other words, before the universe ever leapt into existence at the very word of God, God looked through the corridors of time and he knew that Adam and Eve would sin in the garden. And he knew that everyone who would ever be born of the seed of Adam and Eve would be born with a sin nature, i.e. you and me. We're all born as sinners, sinners by nature. And we commit sin, which makes us sinners by choice. And God knew that humanity would be ruined by the fall. And God knew that, that humanity would be lost and far from His holiness, His holy presence because of their sin. So before time even began, God had a rescue plan in place, a redemption plan, a plan of salvation in place that, that culminated at the cross. 
The cross was put into place by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Revelation says that Jesus was the Lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. In other words, before you ever committed your your first sin, God had a plan of rescue in place for you and for me. And so we see here the destiny of of the cross. Craig Keener writes, Here God's sovereignty stands even behind the very political powers that brought about Jesus' death. The cross was predetermined. The rescue plan was in place in the sovereign heart of God. Jesus was not a victim of circumstances beyond His control. Jesus was obeying the Father, and the Father was carrying out His plan to send a Savior for the world. But not only do we see the destiny of the cross, we see The brutality of the cross. Look what it says there in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Notice that word crucified. You crucified. Crucifixion was the way the Romans carried out the death penalty for those that were considered the least in society. The people that they wanted to kill, and they wanted them to suffer while they killed them. The people that they wanted to shame in the midst of their execution. Those were the folks that they reserved the death penalty of crucifixion for. Crucifixion was the cruelest way, the cruelest way the Romans could conceive of for someone to die. And Jesus who lived a life of power and compassion and perfection, went to the cross and experienced the brutality of crucifixion for you and for me. And you see, that ought to settle for you the question of whether or not God loves you. The Bible says that God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Christ was crucified for us. You may be here today and say, wait, God couldn't love me. You don't know about my past. You don't know about my past week. God couldn't love me. The cross says He does. The cross proclaims and declares over your life that God loves you. It was a brutal way to die. But Jesus went and his body was broken and his blood was shed because he loves you. You see, the cross was not only the predetermined plan of God, the Father sending his son to die, but the Bible also says in John 10 that Jesus laid down his life of his own initiative. He obeyed the Father by willingly going to the cross. The brutality of the cross. There's a third thing here about the cross I want you to see. We see the destiny of the cross. We see the brutality of the cross. But third, I want you to see the reality of the cross. Look what it says in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The Bible's clear. Lawless men killed Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. There was a moment when he said, It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And then he died. You see, the cross is about the death of Jesus. Listen, for our sins. So why did he die? Well, he had to die for our sins to be paid for. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Christ died for our sins. In other words, he died in our place as our substitutionary atonement. He went to the cross, perfect, and he took all of our sin on himself. And on that cross, he took the punishment that you and I deserve. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. That's the reality of the cross, which leads me to an interesting question. You hear this question come up every so often, and it was a question that was prevalent when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out. And the question is, who killed Jesus? Well, we can answer that question historically. In this verse, Peter says... He was killed by the hands of lawless men. The Roman soldiers were the ones who nailed his hands to the cross and nailed his feet to the cross and attended that scene while he hung on the cross from 9 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon. The the, the Roman soldiers were the ones that placed a spear in his side to make sure that he was dead. So the Romans historically put him to death, but there's more layers to it than that, aren't there? We know that the Jewish religious leaders were involved in convincing Pilate to put Jesus to death. They they were concerned about the growing influence of Jesus and they wanted him off the scene. So they contrived a way to have him killed. And they convinced Pilate to sign the death orders. So the Jewish religious leaders were involved in killing Jesus. But it goes beyond that. We know that on that day, as the religious leaders were coming to Pilate, that the crowd was whipped into a frenzy, right? And what were they saying? Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! The religious leaders convinced the people that you need Jesus to die so that that law and order is maintained here in Jerusalem. And so the crowds cried out for the death of Jesus. So historically, you might say that the, the Roman soldiers, driven by the will of the crowd and the, 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 the conniving of the religious leaders, put Jesus to death. That's the historical answer. But there's also a theological answer. Who killed Jesus? Well, this verse tells us that Jesus died by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Isaiah tells us, verse, or chapter 53, that when Jesus died on the cross... The father was pleased, listen, to crush his son. When Jesus was on the cross, God the Father was pouring out all of his righteous wrath that our sin deserves, and he poured it out upon his son who took it in our place. So theologically you could say, well, God the Father killed Jesus on the cross by pouring out his wrath. And Jesus hung there under the weight and curse of our sin. But there's also a way to answer that question personally. There's a historical way to answer the question. 
religious leaders, Romans crowd. A, a, a theological way, God the Father killed His Son, Jesus Christ, by pouring out His wrath. But there's a personal way to answer that question. You see, we killed Jesus. In this room, we are the ones that crucified Him because He died for our sins. The famous painter Rembrandt painted a well-known work titled Three Crosses. And in that painting, if you look carefully at the detail, over kind of in the shadows, there's a figure watching the scene of the crucifixion. And art experts say that that was Rembrandt painting himself into the painting as a way to say, I was there at the cross. He was dying for my sins. Rembrandt understood he was guilty. And it was because of his sin that Jesus died on the cross. He was in the crowd in a manner of speaking. So he painted his own image into that work. And guess what? Jesus died for the sins of everyone in this room. As the song says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. So we see here Peter speak of the death of Jesus Christ, the destiny, the brutality, the reality. But aren't you glad that Jesus went to the cross? There'd be no hope if it weren't for the substitutionary work of Christ. But there's a third aspect of the work of Jesus that we see in this sermon. The life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, but third, the the resurrection of Jesus. Look what it says in verse 24. He doesn't leave us at the foot of the cross. I'm so glad. He takes us to the empty tomb. And he says, God raised him up. Losing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter here highlights the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me show you several things about the resurrection. First of all, the resurrection was inevitable. I love what he says in verse 24. He raised him up, losing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Listen to me. It was not possible for death to ultimately defeat God. God is bigger and greater than death itself. And so it was inevitable. Yes, Joseph of Arimathea took him off the cross. Yes, Joseph of Arimathea placed him in his own tomb. Yes, he was wrapped up in in grave clothes and a stone was rolled across the door. Yes, he was buried. But it was inevitable that he walked out of the tomb. It was impossible for, for death to conquer him. So the resurrection was inevitable. But also, the resurrection was predicted. Look what it says in verse 25. For David says concerning him, and he quotes here from Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter's saying that hundreds of years ago, through the writing of King David, the Bible speaks prophetically 
it predicts the resurrection of Christ. And Peter says this, this psalm is Jesus speaking to his father when he says, You'll not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. In other words, yes, I will die. Yes, my body will be put into the grave, but it will not decay. I will be raised. And, and Peter uses a little good old-fashioned logic to show us how this passage applies to Jesus and not to David himself. Look what he says in verse 29. Brothers, I say to, say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, we know this isn't speaking of David, because David died, he was put into a grave, and his body decayed. He corrupted, his body corrupted. This verse says that whoever is talking about is put into the grave will not get to the place of corruption. Look what he says. Here's the conclusion. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter's saying, way back in Psalm 16, the Bible foreshadowed, the Bible prophesied, the Bible predicted that Jesus Christ would die on the cross, but then he would not be corrupted, he would not decay, he would rise from the dead. The resurrection was predicted, but let me show you one other thing about the resurrection, or two other things. The resurrection was victorious. Look in verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Now that word pangs is literally in the Greek language birth pangs. He's saying when you raised Jesus from the, from the dead, you loosed him, set him free from birth pangs of death. Now, birth pangs are painful. They let you know that something's coming. And, and death is painful. Because when a body goes into the grave, it begins to decay and go back to dust. But here, Peter says, you loosed Jesus from the pains, the the finality of death. You raised him up so he did not have to experience the full measure of what death offers You can say it like this. This is in your notes. Jesus experienced the reality of death, but not the finality of death. Because God loosed him from the pain of death. He he caused him to be raised from the dead. So the resurrection was victorious. And listen to me. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we don't have to fear death either. Death no longer has any sting, does it? Because for the believer, listen, for the believer, when we die, immediately our soul goes to the presence of Jesus Christ. Our body goes in the ground, but our soul goes to heaven. That's a win, right? Death is not final. Death is a transition into eternity, to the very presence of God. But guess what? God hadn't forgot about our bodies. One of the Bible says when Jesus Christ returns... Our bodies will be raised from the, from the dust, raised from the dead, and there'll be new, glorified, imperishable, incorruptible bodies. And at that moment, our soul will be reunited with our new body. And in those bodies, we will live forever and ever and ever in heaven in the presence of King Jesus. Sounds pretty good to me, right? 
Why in the world would we be scared about death? He set Jesus free from the pain of death, and that sets us free from the pain of death. But also, the resurrection of Christ was witnessed. Look what he says in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter here saying, listen, I know what I'm talking about. I hung out with Jesus after his resurrection for 40 days. We ate with him. We talked with him. We touched him. We're not making this stuff up. Jesus really did die. And he really did rise from the dead. And we are eyewitnesses of this wonderful reality. Now, you might ask the question, how many people did Jesus appear to after his resurrection? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look over in 1 Corinthians with me very quickly. 1 Corinthians 15. I want to show you this very important passage. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. I should go down to verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul writes, he appeared also to me. So what's Paul saying? He's saying Jesus is alive. Hundreds of people have experienced him. And if you really want to know if he's alive or not, go ask him. Because most of them are still alive. There are hundreds of folks that are alive that can tell you, I saw the risen Lord Jesus. Now let's say that you went home tonight and you turn on the weather to figure out what it's going to be like tomorrow and the weather person says, tomorrow is a 100% chance of rain. The weather person predicts rain. And you walk out in the morning and you get wet. I mean, it rains and it rains hard. But you say, is it really raining? I'm just not real sure if it really is raining. So I want to ask some other folks. And let's just say you do a quick survey around town. And you ask 500 people, hey, can I ask you a question? Is it raining outside? They would look at you, look outside, and say, yes, it's raining. Now, you would probably at that point come to the conclusion, hopefully, that it's raining outside. Predicted, experienced, and eyewitnessed by many. That's what Peter's saying in this sermon. The Bible predicted the resurrection of Christ. We've experienced our, the, the resurrection of Christ, and there are eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. So here's the conclusion. Jesus Christ really is alive. The resurrection of Christ. But there's one final aspect of the, of the life of Christ I want you to see, the work of Christ. We've talked about the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the, the resurrection of Christ. But fourth and last, let's talk just for a moment about the exaltation of Christ. The exaltation of Christ. Look what Peter says in uh, Acts 2 verse 33. Look what he says. 
Acts 2.33, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Peter's saying he lived a miraculous life of God's power and compassion. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And now he's exalted to the right hand of the Father. And to make that point, he quotes another Old Testament passage, Psalm 110. He quotes David and says that that David here is writing on behalf of God. And this is a, a passage that speaks of Jesus, God the Son, speaking to God the Father. The Lord said, verse 34, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So Peter's saying, just like the Bible said, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. He is exalted. Now, I want to just kind of pose this question because it's interesting. What is Jesus doing at the right hand of God? I mean, what's he doing right now? Well, first of all, he's reigning. Verse 34, the Bible says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So as Jesus Christ reigns in heaven, God is, is bringing the, the, the entire earth, the entire, the entire history of humanity under the rule and authority of Christ. And one day, Christ will return and consummate that rule and authority, and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And until the kingdom becomes visible, the kingdom is spreading through the hearts of people that receive the good news about Jesus Christ. But the earth is being brought under the authority of King Jesus. So what's Jesus doing at the throne? He's reigning. Ephesians 2 speaks of the earth being the footstool of Christ. He's on his throne and everything else is under his feet. Here's a statement that will really, really help you. You ready? Everything that's over your head is under his feet. Isn't that good news? Everything that's over your head is under his feet because he's on his throne. So what's he doing at the right hand of God? He is reigning. Secondly, he's praying. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus as our advocate, Jesus as our great high priest, he lives to make intercession daily for you and for me. So what's Jesus doing right now? He is praying for his followers. He's interceding on our behalf. He is praying for us. That's a comforting thought, isn't it? I mean, if I told you I'm praying for you, hopefully you'd say, well, that's good, that's encouraging. But when I tell you Jesus is praying for you, you ought to say, wow, that's really good news. But also, what's Jesus doing at the right hand of God? He's pouring. Look what it says in verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he's saying there that that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and the Father places the power of the Spirit in the hands of Jesus. There's some Trinitarian stuff going on here, and that's for another sermon. And Jesus, as the second person of the Godhead, receives the third person of the Godhead from the first person of the Godhead, and then he takes the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, and pours his power out on believers so they can accomplish the Great Commission. Isn't that incredible? So what's Jesus doing at the right hand of the Father? He is pouring out the Spirit of God on the followers of Christ so we can live for the glory of 
God. He's doing that right now at the right hand of the Father, pouring out His Spirit. So what's Jesus doing at the right hand of God? Reigning, praying, pouring. Yesterday, Cameron and I were riding around in my truck doing some errands, and, and I was telling Cameron what I was going to preach about today. Cameron's my, my 11-year-old. And I said, Cameron, I was going to kind of quiz him. Cameron, what's Jesus doing at the right hand of God right now? What's, he's at the right hand of the Father. What's he doing right now? And Cameron said, he's preparing a place for us when we get there. And I thought, I hadn't thought of that. That's good. So let's add that to the list. Yes, John 14, what's he doing? He's got to prepare a place for us, right? Jesus Christ is exalted. Now think about the big picture of the the person, the work, the ministry of Jesus. He was in heaven, existing forever. he's, He's eternal. There's never been a time when he has not existed. And in heaven, he enjoyed the unceasing praise and worship of the angelic host. The the worth that is due his name was always ascribed to him properly. But then Jesus left heaven and came to earth and took on humanity. And during his time upon the earth, he was scorned. He was mocked. He was maligned. A crown of thorn was thrust upon his brow. His beard was pulled out of his face. Trained. Killers, Roman soldiers, hit him in the face with their fist and lashed his back with a cat of nine tails and ultimately nailed him to a cross. And on a hill called Golgotha, Jesus Christ suffered and died taking the curse and shame that our sin Deserves. Oh, how far down he came from heaven to the cross. But then, early on Sunday morning, God raised him from the dead. And then he ascended back to heaven from where he came. And then he sat at the right hand of the Father, reigning over the universe, the exaltation of Jesus. Oh, how glorious. I read a story about a group of climbers that set out to scale a large mountain in Europe. On clear days, they could see the peak of the mountain. They could see their final destination. And on those clear days, there was excitement. They would move forward in their journey. They would make great progress on those days, motivated by seeing the finish line, seeing the peak where they were headed. But on other days, the peak of the mountain was obscured by clouds. And on those days, instead of lifting their eyes up to the peak, their eyes were lowered. And the work became arduous. And the journey became slow. And the task became difficult. Because instead of looking up to the finish line, looking up to the peak, their eyes were cast down. Can I tell you this? As you climb the mountain that you and I call life, Your eyes need to be looking up at the exalted Lord 
Jesus. Because if your eyes are always down on your circumstances, on your troubles, on your trials, on your hardships, life is going to seem arduous and impossible. But if you look up to the right hand of God, you'll see King Jesus. And He'll give you the inspiration and the wherewithal you need to keep on keeping on for the glory of God. The exaltation of Jesus. So wait, what's what's the bottom line? The the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the, the exaltation. What's the bottom line? Well, Peter gives us the bottom line. Look what he says in verse 36. Here's his conclusion. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord, that means master, ruler, boss, king, and Christ, which means anointed one. The one God promised to send in the Old Testament. The one that God sent 2,000 years ago and anointed him to do everything required for you and I to be saved. The Messiah sent from God, anointed by God to accomplish the finished work of redemption. So Peter focuses in his sermon on two titles. Here's the implication. You can't get away from it. Jesus is Lord and he is Christ. Which leads me to this question. What will you do with Jesus? If you look in your notes, here's the point of it all. The works of Jesus prove his identity and provide for your salvation. So embrace him as Lord and Savior. The one sent from God. Have you embraced him as the Christ, your only hope? The one sent from God to provide for your forgiveness? Have you embraced him as the Christ? And listen to me. Listen closely. Do you live with him as Lord? Is he calling the shots over your life? Are you obeying him? I've heard this said many times. He's either Lord of all in your life or he's not Lord at all in your life. And you cannot live in conscious disobedience to King Jesus and call him Lord. It's impossible. But don't you think he deserves your surrender? The one who died for you, the one who rose from the dead, the one at the right hand of God, don't you think he deserves the entirety of your life? Lord in Christ. I read a story about John Newton. John Newton wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton was gloriously saved by God. He was a a wicked man involved in the debauchery of the English slave trade. But God saved him. And he, he never got over the grace of God. That's why he wrote lyrics like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And after John Newton was saved, he became a pastor. And he, he pastored for years and years, a faithful preacher of the Word of God. And even to his later years, when he was very weak and frail, John Newton would go to the pulpit and preach the gospel. Well, on one of those occasions, 
He was standing in the pulpit with an assistant. He'd gotten so frail that an assistant went to the pulpit to kind of help him out. And during one of his sermons, John Newton said, Jesus Christ is precious. And then he said it again. Jesus Christ is precious. And then he said it again. Jesus Christ is precious. And his assistant leaned over and said, You've already said that twice. And John Newton said, I know I said it twice. I'm going to say it again. Jesus Christ is precious. What will you do with Jesus? Jesus.